Brethren, I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scriptures to Exodus 24. That will be our primary text today. I'll I'll just be uh, surveying that passage. There are a couple verses I want to highlight. But I'll also be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 9, the first 12 verses. And I want to highlight a, a portion of that passage as well in the sermon today. Uh, just a quick announcement before we begin the, the uh, sermon. Uh, there are those who have an uh, interest in seeing the, the large building, and assuming we don't get a big snowstorm between now and the end of the services, uh, Shay's uh, volunteered to take folks over there to see it, so you're welcome to do that. All right, from Exodus chapter 24, here once again the very words of God. Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there there was under his feet as it Uh, were a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant, Joshua And Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And now from Deuteronomy chapter 9, the first 12 verses. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourself, cities great and fortified up to heaven, 
a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is He who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you. So you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until the time you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Also in Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. When I went up into the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. Then the Lord delivered to me the two tablets of stone, written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And it came to pass at the end of forty days and forty nights that the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way in which I commanded them, they have made themselves a molded image. Brethren, the grass withers, the flowers, they fade away, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we peruse the Mosaic Covenant today in our worship time, we pray that you'd give us clarity of thought with regard to its importance, not only in the days of the deliverance of your people out of Egypt, the days of Moses when he went up on Mount Sinai and came down with the tablets that you had engraved with your, your righteousness. We pray, Father, that we would understand that that righteousness has been written on our hearts and in our minds according to the new covenant and the importance of that continuity from old to new covenants. Help us to understand this better today. And This we pray in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, today, as I've mentioned in the prayer, we're going to consider the Mosaic Covenant, the fourth of the primary covenants of the Old Testament. The first being the covenant with Adam, the Adamic Covenant. The next being the Noahic Covenant with Noah, where God delivered his uh, seven people in the ark, along with animals that would repopulate the earth. Uh, then the Abrahamic Covenant, which we've looked at the last two Sundays, Today and next week, we're going to look at this Mosaic Covenant. Then we'll go to the Davidic Covenant, uh, 
And with the Davidic covenant, we'll finish the covenants of the Old Testament. And then we're going to the new covenant in Christ Jesus. And all of these previous covenants, the five that, we've, uh, that I've just mentioned from the Old Testament, point to and, and are fulfilled in the new covenant. And I'm going to draw that thread uh, uh, right through that tapestry. I'm going to point it out as we go through that tapestry in a few weeks when we get to the uh, new covenant. The two passages I've chosen for us to read that proclaim God's giving of the law to Moses make the specific reference to this act of establishing a covenant between God and his chosen people by and through Moses. Now Moses is not the one that God makes the covenant with, it's the children of Israel, but he delivers excuse me, he delivers it through Moses, which is in keeping with the five points of of the covenants that Ray Sutton points out in his book, That You May Prosper. So I want to make mention of those. I will in a few moments. But here in the Mosaic Covenant, we see the deliverance of God's people from the tyrant Pharaoh through the ten plagues, culminating with the Passover, which becomes a a covenant sign and seal of, of both the Old Covenant in its broadest sense, but the Mosaic Covenant in a very specific sense. Uh, And then the parting of the Red Sea for the people of Israel, which was salvation for the Hebrews, but a judgment on Pharaoh and his army when they pursued the Israelites into that dry uh, uh, bed, seabed, which then closed in on them as a judgment. But as we think about this, these very dramatic examples... God establishes his covenant with in in unforgettable fashion. When he establishes a covenant in the scriptures, it's unforgettable in the the drama that surrounds it. And I I think that's intentional in the scriptures. It's drawing our attention to the great acts of God, and he wants us to pause and take note of these things and their particular uh, characteristics. So today I'm going to point out two characteristics from this making of the covenant with Moses. There are at least a dozen that I could have touched on today, but time won't permit that. I want to touch on two. But I do want to to, to, uh, uh, emphasize that it's not just the Mosaic covenant that was dramatic for the people of Israel, but all of the covenants that God has made in the Old Testament and will make right up through the New Covenant. There is to be no mistaking of the importance of God's covenants, and he sets them apart in dramatic fashion. God acts daily, every moment by every moment, as has been said from this pulpit many times before. He is sovereign over all things, and God is imminent in working out his will in every age, including our own with all of the, the calamities that we have and the circumstances that that cause us to fret. God is at work, and we should never lose that focus. Yet there are times in history, the history of men, that God works in particularly dramatic fashion. And that happens when he establishes his covenants. Uh, He brings those special circumstances. So with the cutting of the Mosaic Covenant, God places particular emphasis on two of the five elements found in all covenants, And those two elements are the third and fourth elements specified by Ray Sutton in his book that you may prosper. 
And the five elements, and I'll emphasize the two that are most prominently seen in the Mosaic Covenant, the five elements are first transcendence, that God makes a unilateral covenant with his people. It's a covenant of adhesion. We don't get to to negotiate the terms of the covenant. God gives those terms to us. And you might first think, well, that's unfair, isn't it? If I'm going to enter into a covenant with God, shouldn't I have the opportunity to negotiate those terms? The answer is no. No, and why is that? Because we would not negotiate good terms for ourselves. God is gracious. He is always gracious and always merciful. And when He initiates a covenant, it's as good as it gets. We don't need to look for something better. When God makes a covenant, it's the best. And that's how we ought to look upon God's covenant. So transcendence, God makes a unilateral covenant. He establishes a hierarchy, and that is that He establishes responsibilities within that covenant. And in the Adamic covenant, the covenant with Adam, He he gives to Adam the authority to fill the earth and subdue it. I've created all of this. I want you to use it for my glory and your good. That's what it means to subdue the earth. But there's a hierarchy. He transfers to a lesser magistrate, if you will, his, his creation, Adam, to do this good work. And just as in the new covenant, God makes a covenant with his son, that son, the son of God then makes us joint heirs with him by and through salvation. So we are lesser magistrates, if you will, in the new covenant. We'll get to that in a few weeks. There's always ethics involved in God's covenant making. Responsibilities. As in, as in the Old Testament, the, the Old Covenant, uh, the Noahic Covenant, although the Noahic Covenant, the primary responsibility is with God, that He'll never again judge the world with a, a deluge, a flood. That's one of the ethical requirements of the Noahic Covenant. But there's also another, right? If, if a man's life is taken by another man's hand, his life should be forfeited as well. And so God establishes that ethic for mankind. Then the fourth item in covenants are sanctions, both positive and negative. If the covenants are kept, God's blessings flow to the keepers of his covenant. But if, they're, uh, if, the, if the covenant is ignored or broken, then God's judgments come against those who ignore or break his covenant. And then lastly is a continuity, a concept of continuity or inheritance. That there is an inheritance that comes as a result of this, a perpetuation. And I'm going to speak about that a little bit today as well. But the two items that are most pro, pro, uh, pronounced in the Mosaic Covenant are the ethics of God's covenant making and also the sanctions. We're going to look at that more next week than today because I want to focus our attention on two aspects of how this covenant is delivered to the people of Israel and how we are to look upon it. Uh, in modern day evangelicalism, uh, the law of God is, is considered uh, kind of, and I mentioned this last week, like a discarded first draft. It's not something we're actually supposed to follow after. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge that notion head on today. Uh, recently there's been a movement 
to identify what's called antinomianism. Anti meaning against, nomos meaning is the Greek word for law. So antinomianism is against the law. Uh, a lot of theologians today in, in modern Christendom are writing uh, 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 critically of those people who say that the law has passed away. And I think they're right, frankly. And I'm going to point some of that out today in the sermon. So I want to, I want to deal with uh, the ethics and the sanctions of God's covenants next week. But today I want to end, uh, draw our attention to the everlasting nature of this covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And you say, well, Chuck, that doesn't seem quite right. Well, let's look at the scriptures and let the scriptures speak for themselves with regard to that notion. In Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6, God makes it abundantly clear that when the Hebrews crossed the Jordan River to possess the promised land, that promised land that was identified in the Abrahamic covenant, the nations will be delivered into their hands and destroyed. Now remember when they first came uh, <coughs> to cross over the Red Sea into the promised land, they didn't take the promised land and God says, okay, you're going to wander for 40 years because you don't, you're not keeping my word. You're not doing what I told you to do. And so they would, they would wander for 40 years. And then they'd come back again and then they would have to cross, I said the Red Sea. I should have said the Jordan River, right? Shay, you can correct me. That's okay. <laughs> uh, so they, they wandered for 40 years and they came back to the Jordan River and now 40 years later they've learned their lesson and they're ready to, to cross over and do what God said. But there's, they're going into the Lamb of the Anakim. And we read that. Uh, you've heard about these people. And who can stand against the, the sons of Anak? That's where the, the term Anakim comes from. Their, their head was Anak. And he was a giant. He was a giant of a man. The, <clears throat> there were two other giants uh, spoken of in the Old Testament that had kingdoms. One of them had a bed of iron that was 19 feet long. So that was a, that was a big man. Uh, I think he was the, uh, uh, the, the king of Og, if I'm not mistaken. Og and the Bashanites uh, the, uh, were uh, giants as well. But anyway, the people of Israel are going to cross over. They're going to be confronted in this land with these, these uh, giants. Well, here we see that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. God knows the hearts and minds of his chosen people. And he knows that they will think in their hearts and minds that they in some way deserve God's favor that it was they who subdued these giants. Once, once these giants are, are dispossessed, that's the term that God uses here, once they are dispossessed, the idea in the minds of his people will be that we did it out of our own righteousness, out of our own might. But God is warning them against that. <coughs> Brethren, the hearts of men and women are so wicked that we somehow believe we can compel God to do our bidding. Trust me, we can't. You can't. I can't. God only does things based upon His own goodwill and His decree. We'll get to that a little bit later, but also uh, next week as well. We don't compel God to do anything. He does not do our bidding. And we, do know, we don't help ourselves when we think that way. And this is the warning 
of Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6. It's made abundantly clear. God works out all his holy will from his righteous wisdom and not in reaction to anything that men do to compel him to act. And this very notion is reiterated in the New Testament in Romans 9, 14 through 16. And there we read these words. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. And we need to keep this in our minds all the time. God shows mercy to people sometimes that we don't even like, and we don't even think he should show mercy to. This person is wicked, or this person is tyrannical, and yet God turns that heart from stone to flesh. And sometimes it makes us mad when we know the wickedness of that person. But we should rejoice because God has done the same with us. We just don't know how desperately wicked we are ourselves. The will of God is made manifest without our help or aid. God is sovereign and we are not. His will comes to pass and our wills are to be conformed to His will. Just as the Bible teaches us that we're to be conformed to the image of His Son. This brings us to the everlasting nature of the Mosaic Covenant. Four particular passages inform us on the nature of the Mosaic Covenant. The first we find in the Ten Commandments themselves, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And we read, or we read in both of those passages, these words appended to the Second Commandment. We read this already in our worship service this morning. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You should now bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." Brethren, keep in mind that God has called the writing of his moral law on these tablets, tablets of the covenant. And this we see in Deuteronomy 9.11. But here, God says, I will show judgment on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but to a thousand of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, and now I'm arguing that the, the, the Mosaic Covenant, covenant has a, a continuous element to it, just like we've seen in all the previous covenants, that it doesn't come to an end. This is going to be very important in just a few moments, and you'll see what I mean. Someone might eject that there is no preference here to the tablets of the covenant having a perpetually binding effect. After all, it doesn't say to a thousand generations here in Deuteronomy 5.10 as it does with the third and fourth generations of those who hate God. Well, let me point out something about that word generations. The Hebrew word for generations doesn't appear at all in Deuteronomy 5.10, even with the third and fourth generations as it appears in our English version. You'll notice that the word generations is in italics there. It's because it doesn't appear in the original text. But does that mean that that's not what's intended? 
I think the word generations is intended, but it should have been also been included with the thousand generations. Well, where do I come with that? How do I come to that conclusion? Because of later revelation. Just two chapters later in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7 in verse 9, there we read, Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. So although it doesn't appear in chapter 5, the word generations, it does appear in chapter 7, very specifically in the Hebrew text. The Hebrew word for generation is included with the numerical amount in Deuteronomy 7, 9, a thousand. Well, does this fix the interpretive problem of Deuteronomy 5, 10? Not completely. There are those who would take the hermeneutical principle of literalism to a place in the scriptures uh, that I think we should not go. When we read to a thousand generations in Deuteronomy 7.9, is the scripture teaching us that the thousand and first generation is not included in God's mercy of those who keep his commandments? Are we so, to be so literal with that number, are we then to conclude that the thousand and first generation are not to be included in God's mercy? I, I see people smiling as if to say, no, you can't, you can't go there, Pastor Hickey. I agree with you. That would be like saying in Psalm 50.10, where God says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that we are to consider the cattle on the thousand and first hill to belong to somebody other than God. Right? If we're, so, if we're going to be so literal with that thousand years, it causes us a problem when we get to the thousand and first hill or the thousand and first generation, doesn't it? That would be nonsense to think such a thing. Utter nonsense. Fortunately for us, in Psalm 50, if you read the whole verse, it, it becomes quite clear. The whole verse reads this way. Psalm 50, verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, if every beast in the forest is God's, that includes all the cattle on the thousand and first hill, right? Assuming they're in a forest, if you, if you want to qualify the, the, the verse a little. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's ridiculous to think that God doesn't own it all. Another song says God owns the whole thing. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So all of this belongs to God. Likewise, to the people in the thousand and first generation of those who keep his commandment, the promise is for them as well, that God will be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. By God's infinite wisdom, and so our feeble understanding might have greater clarity, God has given us a very similar clarification for the fourth commandment in the book of Exodus, chapter 31. So let's go back to the, to the uh, Mosaic Covenant. Fourth commandment, right? Uh, if we look in chapter 31 of Exodus, beginning in verse 12, we read these words. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. 
We've seen that phrase before throughout your generations. We saw that in the uh, uh, Abrahamic covenant, that same kind of reference. So here we're seeing it again. But let's continue to read. That you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a what? Perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel for a thousand generations? For 500 generations? No, forever it says. This is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. This is the answer to my question from Sunday school last week. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now, I want to draw, I keep talking about a tapestry with a thread that goes from the beginning to the end. I want to draw this thread through the tapestry right now. When did the Sabbath day begin? When did the Sabbath rest begin? The seventh day of creation, right? So that was part of which covenant? The covenant of life. Is that, is that something that comes to an end? The Sabbath rest? Not according to the Scriptures. And we can point to this very chapter in Deuteronomy. Verse 17. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. Now if you think back to last week, or two, I think it was two weeks ago, the first the first lesson that we did on the Abrahamic covenant, I drew the link between we, New Testament Christians, and Abraham being our father in the faith. All right? That we are one people. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Abraham did it before Christ came. We've done it now since he's come. We are all the people of God. Abraham is our father in the faith because it was accounted to him for righteousness. What do we trust in for our righteousness? It's not our own works, but rather the righteousness of God through his son, Jesus Christ. We trust by faith as Abraham trusted by faith. And here it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Do you see the perpetual nature of this particular sign of this covenant? The Mosaic covenant? All of these things come together. They aren't, we, in our Western minds, we like to put things in categories. We like to stick them in boxes, and we don't want the box open for fear that it might fall into the next box, right? Or... I confess, I don't like food touching other food on my plate. I'm going to confess. I don't know why that is, but it's just me. Do you understand what I'm saying? We don't like things to to commingle. For God, it's not that way. All of it has purpose, and everything's related to something else. We can't divide it up as if it has no meaning. 
They're all related. That's why I said at the beginning of these lessons, everybody's in the covenants with God. We're either in as covenant keepers or covenant breakers. You can't escape covenant. It, you can't do it. It's impossible. That's what the covenant of life, the Adamic covenant is all about. All right, let's keep moving on. <clears throat> so with at least two commandments from the ten, we have two references to the perpetuity of the Mosaic Covenant. Children, the word perpetuity means it's perpetual. It continues and goes on and on. So with at least two of the commandments of the ten, we have this notion of the perpetuity of the Mosaic Covenant. The phrase to a thousand uh, uh, in the uh, second commandment and uh, the phrase perpetual covenant here with regard to the fourth commandment they make this most evident. There is a perpetual nature to this covenant. Now, even with the strength of these several verses, I believe there's another reference that's even more compelling with regard to the perpetual nature of the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, And I believe it's found both in the Old and New Testaments because both are referenced. And that is the the promise and fulfillment of the New Covenant that's referenced in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, and reiterated in Hebrews chapters 8 and 10. And for those, the men that have been in the, the Bible study, weekly Bible study, or bi-weekly Bible study, I should say, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, we've already passed through both of those chapters, and we saw that link between uh, the Old Testament reference in Jeremiah 31, as well as the references in Hebrews 8 and 10. I'm not going to go to Hebrews 8 and 10 just to say that it's there and you can uh, study those references as well, but I do want to read for you Jeremiah 31 and 31 and following. This is the first prophecy of what is called the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, <clears throat> but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the part of the terms of the new covenant. We'll look at this more carefully in just a few weeks. <clears throat> but notice what he what God compels Jeremiah to say to the people of God. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So part of the terms is the forgiving of sin forever. I will remember their sins no more. How does God forget? How is that possible? Do you forget things? Well, yeah, we do. We we forget things that are to us insignificant. But things that are significant to us, we never forget those things, right? Somebody hurts you significantly, do you ever forget that? Every time you see their face, it reminds you of that hurt, doesn't it? 
Often those are things that remain for us our whole lives. Now we're made in the image of God. And yet God says, I'm going to forget their sins. I will remember their sins no more. <laughs> Praise God that He can do it. Because I can't... I, in my sinful heart, too often, I, 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 I think of the things, ways in which I've been wronged. And I can't, hold, I can't get past that. Other, other things are good that happen to us that we can't, we can't forget. I remember the day I first trusted in Christ. I remember that evening. I, I believe it was June the 6th, 1973. The year I'm not sure about. The day I am sure about. The, the circumstance. The day that I understood that I was a sinner in desperate need of salvation. I remember that day. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget my response to the, to the Scriptures. The person, the man that was preaching, the the uh, the compassion of the of the uh, uh, deacons who prayed with me that evening at that church. It was in a Baptist church. It wasn't in a Presbyterian church. Doesn't mean you can't get saved in a Presbyterian church. You can, <laughs> but it, uh, that good thing sticks in my memory, just like the bad things can stick in my memory. But God says, "I will remember your sins no more." Oh my goodness. The very things that offend him so greatly, he promises to forget in the new covenant. That's powerful. That's powerful. But notice what the other term uh, that's part of the new covenant. I will write my laws in their minds and on their hearts. Here we see that God's making a change. That's why it's called a new covenant. He's making a change and confirming what he has already done at the same time. He's confirming a covenant and at the same time making a change with it. He is making a new covenant, which is of necessity requires some change, while not violating his own nature. His nature, where we see in Malachi 3.6, I am God, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Well then, if God doesn't change, how is it that he can make a new covenant? Let me try to fix that problem logically in our minds. Here in Jeremiah 31, God specifically references the Mosaic Covenant in verse 32, where it says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. So God, God is referencing the Mosaic Covenant here as he delivers his children uh, from bondage. But we must be very careful that we don't assume that God is completely doing away with the Mosaic Covenant. That's not the change that's being made here, brethren. And I say this because of the very promise of the New Covenant that God will write his laws on our hearts and on our minds. That's a provision of the New Covenant. Wait a minute. He's, he's changing the covenant that... That we couldn't, that the people of Israel couldn't keep when they were delivered from Egypt, but at the same time he's saying he's writing their, the laws on their hearts and their minds. Well, what is the change? It's right in front of us. It's right here in front of us. The very laws given to Moses, reiterated by our Lord and summarized further in the two great commandments that we said earlier, are going to be written where? 
on our hearts and our minds. Where were they previously written? Tablets of stone. Is that a change? The difference is not that God is making new laws and abandoning the Mosaic law. On the contrary, the difference is where he's writing those laws. Let me say that again. The difference is where he writes those laws. They were on tablets of stone that Moses would throw down at one point and break, right? And that shows just how stubborn the people of Israel were. Out of his anger, he throws the stones down, they break, and it's, it's a picture of the people of Israel breaking covenant with God. Now, Moses should never have done it, and he suffers the consequences of that. Remember I said there's negative and positive sanctions about keeping the law of God? Moses was faithful to the law of God, but he took the symbols of that law and he broke them. And what would happen to Moses? He would not enter into the promised land. He disobeyed God in a different place as well with, with regard to the rock. He struck the rock uh, when water came out of it and he wasn't to strike it. But God's saying, wait a minute, you can't, don't, it's as if he's saying to Moses, you don't play lightly with what I've given you. You don't do these things lightly. These are important to me and they need to be important to you. But the laws of God were written on stone, but in the New Covenant, they're written on the hearts and minds of God's people. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit with regard to the New Covenant. We will give thought to these truths when we study the New Covenant, and that's a few, two weeks away at least. I, I, I hope to finish up the Mosaic Covenant next week. However, this exercise that we've just done does emphasize the perpetuity of the Mosaic Covenant covenant and the continuity of the old covenants with the new covenant. There's another continuity that I didn't point out. Need to point it out real quick here. What does God what does Moses do with the blood from the sacrifices that are given? He separates them into two things, right? What happens to the first part? Do you remember what the scripture said? I'm sorry? That's right. Two different bowls, but what happens with the bowls? There you go. The one, one bloody bowl goes on the altar to God. It's as, it's, it got, he's offering to God a, a bloody sacrifice, which, remember the Scriptures teach us, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So that picture has to happen. But at the same time, Half of the blood is sprinkled on whom? The people of God. Now, we, that does not sound like fun, does it? And yet, that's what Christ did for us. There was no, the, Christ prayed to the Lord, prayed to the Father. It, may this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. This was not something that he looked forward to in the sense of I'm going to enjoy what's about to happen. He looked forward to the consequences of what he was going to do. The scriptures also tell us that uh, he, he, uh, now the passage leaves my mind, he understood that redemption would come as part of his sacrifice. That he looked forward to. But going through the sacrifice itself was not something he looked forward to. 
Here, blood is shed. Was blood shed in the first covenant? Do you remember that? Was blood shed in the first covenant? Yes. Remember the nakedness of Adam and Eve after they sinned? They realized they were naked. God said, who told you that? And they had put fig leaves on themselves. God says, that's not sufficient. So God killed animals and gave them skins to cover themselves. From the first to the last, from the Adamic covenant to the new covenant, blood has to be shed for the remitting of sins. In the old covenant, there's a covering. In the new covenant, they're remembered no more. You see the newness of the new covenant? How important that is? I, I, I hope to get to that in just a couple of weeks. Okay. Next week, we're going to consider the ethics and sanctions of the Mosaic Covenant. But I hope this gives us a sense that that thread of covenant importance goes from covenant to covenant to covenant right through to the New Covenant. And that's what we are enjoying now as believers in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.